Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter number one as we continue our study in John's gospel. What a glorious day, exciting day, wonderful day. This morning, um, I'm thankful for the many hands that have made light work with uh, the little reception afterwards and all the love and care that has gone into so much to tell these families thank you. Wouldn't it be great if like after that parenting dedication moment, like the hard work was over. That was it. Good to go all downhill from here. All I can say is it's all hilly from here, right? Hilly. Lots of ups, lots of downs, but God is faithful, isn't he? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that uh, through eyes of faith, we can behold that you are our God. There is none like you. You alone are worthy. John will point us to that truth today, God, and we are so blown away that you have chosen to reveal yourselves to us through your perfect and complete word, by the work of your spirit, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. What a God, what a Savior, what a moment we have together this morning. We say thank you. Now tune our ears and hearts to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we had some of our students and young people do really well memorizing a lot of scripture, and so I got them these sermon notebooks designed for kids. You see what I did there, right? That's ulterior motive. (laughs) Teaching them to pay attention. They're doing a great job. And some others saw that and said, hey, that's kind of cool. Can we get one of those? The answer is sure, but I, I don't know that I can buy everybody in the world, all of them. So what I did is we got a licensing permission. Parents, there's some little inserts out there that the, um, the greeters have when you come in that have these things. They're little check marks. They can check every time somebody says God or Jesus or there's a Bible uh, verse reference. Well, when we started in John last week, I mean, how many times did I say Jesus or God or the Bible? Uh, my daughter came home and her little notebook was full. It was a good day. I said, Daddy may not do that good all the time, but way to pay attention. It was a good day. There's a lot of God and Jesus in our text this morning, but I want you to think with me the last time you gave a tour of your home, uh, the last time that you invited somebody into your home and, and walk them into a room and said, now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I want to bring your attention to the fact that um, I've turned the light on in the room. Like, really, when you walked into a room and you said, before we look at anything, did you notice the light? Unless it's a stunning light fixture, we tend to just flip the light on and the evidence that the light is on is that the room is lit, right? You with me? This is not, I'm not setting you up for anything. Like it's kind of a no-brainer here. The, the only time that you have to give someone an indication that the light is on is when something is wrong or different. Why do we need to tell people a light is on in a room? Well, if they can't see clearly. My really good friend, Brian Sanders, who worships with us regularly has lived with blindness for years now and he describes it as the lights are off and and he has to be told when the lights are on you have blind friends and family maybe that express the same thing and John has said in the text we just read he, he came to announce that the light has come into the world my header this morning for the passage we'll look at verses 6 through 13 is the light worth 
shining. Why do we tell people the light is on? A.W. Pink answers it this way. He says, when the sun is shining in all of its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of that fact? Who need to be told the sun is shining? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for us to be told a light has come. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is shining. What a revelation of our fallen condition and blindness. The first thing I'd have you write down, there's three kind of headers for me as I study the text. You may have more or less, but I want you to study it nonetheless. Here's the first header I'd give you. Number one, it's God sends a witness. God sends a witness. Uh, Jesus could have come in so many ways, and the Christmas season affords us the opportunity to talk about that, doesn't it? He could have come with all of the pomp and circumstance, right, that any king and earthly royalty would normally necessitate. But Jesus came humble and lowly as a babe in a manger. But he didn't show up out of nowhere in his earthly ministry when he arrives. God sent a witness to prepare the way of the Lord. God sends a witness and he does the same today. The Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. Now, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so when I was reading John as a young kid and then saw John talk about John, I thought, that's weird. He's talking about himself in the third person. Well, just a little note here in case you're tracking along. Anytime in the Gospel of John you read the name of John, that's John the Baptizer or John the Baptist, not John the son of Zebedee that's writing the book. And so uh, we have John the Baptist as the one that's arriving on the scene. He was Jesus' second cousin. If you're taking notes, just kind of thinking about that, mental notes, there was a man, like he was just a human man. Uh, He was actually born to elderly parents. Can anybody remember John the Baptist's parents' name? Zachariah and Elizabeth. I'll never forget, it might have been last Advent season, Scott picked up on it when I talked to him after the service. Um, I think it was not this previous one, but the one the previous year. You know, sometimes you say something wrong, you don't hear yourself say it wrong until you say it wrong about three times. And then you think, I probably should just move on and not bring attention to it. After the service, I went to Scott, I said, did I say Elizabeth was Mary's sister? He said, yep, three times. So... (laughs) I said, yeah, I'll clean it up. I'll send out an email if I need to. He said, it's all right. We all knew what you meant. But here he is. He was Jesus' second cousin. John's birth was announced by an angel. In Malachi 3, John the Baptist's ministry was talked about and prophesied. He was set apart by God. He was among the first to believe in Jesus. He was a man, and then the second word says, sent by God. He was commissioned by God. John's purpose in life was to tell others about the Lord. Now he was commissioned just like Moses was in the Old Testament. He was commissioned like the prophets were. The Bible says in Isaiah 6 and in Jeremiah 1, the prophets were commissioned to tell. He is sent like Jesus. When Jesus was speaking in John 3, actually, he'll say, the Father sent me for this reason, not that reason. 
It's a frequent theme in John's gospel that people and John and we are sent. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when Aaron Daniel was here? You're like, who's that? We have lots of guests. What does that mean? He was the very tall Aussie, the Australian. Really tall guy, the thunder from down under. Anybody? Like, looks like he could have been a wrestler. Big dude. We took a picture and he had to squat and sit on a pew and it was still, the picture was like this. Like, that's where we were, just so you know. But I still took one. So when, when he preached for us in March of 2020, that's a minute ago. Everybody remembers what happened in March of 2020. It was about the third Sunday that the nation was locked down trying to figure out what to do with the COVID situation. He preached for us remotely and he preached a sermon called Sentness and he had a lot of text from John because it's a theme in John's gospel. John was obedient to the commission as a witness to testify concerning the light. Another thing we see in that verse, John had a purpose that all who heard might believe. I mean, it's a lot in just introducing John the Baptist. He's saying, my life's work, my life's goal. I have a pulse and I can inhale and exhale so that others might believe. I'm going to use this gift, the gift of speech that God's given me to tell others about the coming Messiah. His desire was that everybody he encountered would come to believe that Jesus was God's son, the true light and the only source of life, the only way to be be made right with God. This was his driving force. Now, a lot of times, I don't know how you pray, but there are times in my prayer life that I pray, God, I, I want to love what you love and hate what you hate. God, give me, help me to have your heart in this situation. John, it seems, has God's heart as revealed in 2 Peter this morning. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, here it is, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. John believed that before it was written down. He lived this. He wanted to tell everybody about the somebody who could save anybody, we used to say. If you're a genuine believer, then you are in possession of the greatest treasure for now and all eternity. It's the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This treasure should never be hidden from anyone. On the contrary, it should be shared with Everyone, let me give a story to you as recounted by uh, James Hewitt. He writes of Luigi Terizio was found dead one morning with a scarce comfort in his home, barren almost to the core. But with 246 exquisite violins, which he had been collecting all of his life, they were crammed into the attic And the best of these violins was shoved into the bottom drawer of an old rickety bureau. In his very devotion to the violin, he had actually robbed the world of all of the music that they could have been playing. One of them he got from somebody who did the same thing. It was a rare Stradivarius that when the first time it was played, it was estimated it was the first tune it had given for 147 years. Hewitt writes, I'm afraid too many of us modern-day Christians are like Teresio. We love Jesus, we love the church, yet we fail to publish the good news. When we learn the message of salvation through Christ alone, we need to tell 
everybody. It's the greatest song that can be sung, the greatest message that can be shared, the greatest light that can be shown. All people need to hear it. Our neighbors and the nations. Don't keep the gospel to yourself. Shine the light of God. Remember, John was commissioned, but so were we. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's not a good suggestion. It's a commission God's place on our life. The last thing in those first few verses we have, John is very clear in verse eight. Look at it in your Bibles this morning. By the way, if you didn't bring one, feel free to grab one of those pew Bibles. If you don't have one, take it with you. We're happy to replace that. Uh, Verse eight this morning, he says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Can you take a moment and just process that? In, in the culture that we live in, how refreshing is it <laughs> when everybody's looking out to take selfies and to publish their reels and to be seen and social credit score needs to be high, all of these things. Isn't it refreshing to read about somebody whose life mission was to point away from themselves? You know what? Don't you like being around people like that? Like when you get around them, they're not all about themselves. They want to hear about you. They want to talk about others in a positive way. They want to point to the Lord. You know what? Christians ought to be those kind of people. That's us. We ought to live like that. Our only hope in life and death is to come to the realization as a child of God that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans, 1, in Romans 14, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's us. We need to be a John kind of person that points away from ourselves and to Jesus Second point this morning, it's a quick one, because it, but it bears mentioning because it really fits the way the text moves. Jesus is the true light. He really hits that hard again in verse nine. Jesus is the true light. So God sends a witness, but the story's not about the witness. The story's about Christ. He's the true light. John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John the Baptist was sent by God into the world to tell us about Jesus. John was not hoping to just give information to the folks he encountered. John was not hoping to just aim for inspiration after he spoke. John's aim was to point people to the only hope for transformation of their lives. This is the work that God called him to do. Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He's so much truer than any pablum that passes for relativism in our current age. This is real truth, not your truth, not your truth, not his truth, not her truth, thank God not Washington's truth. This is truth from heaven. 
This is the real thing. He's so much truer. He's so much brighter than the brightest lights that culture pretends to shine that run out pretty quick. He is greater than the greatest. He is higher than the highest. He is the only one worthy. This is Jesus, God's precious son, the only way to the Father's forgiveness, the only truth that lasts for eternity, and the only life worth living. Let the church say amen. Jesus is the true life. So here's John sent by God to tell the world about Jesus. What a message. He's pointing them to the true light. Now, if you didn't know this, I know you know where this is going, right? You've read ahead, all the things. You all know stuff. I get it. I can see on your faces. It's great. But imagine you didn't know anything about the Bible. You, you didn't know anything about the Bible, okay? You come in this morning. You're hearing this message. You don't know what's about to drop next. You don't know. You've not had a spoiler, right? You don't know what's coming. Uh, somebody hands you that little gospel of John that we have out in our lobby. You're reading it. You come to this like, man, this is awesome. John was sent to tell everybody about the light. Jesus is the true light. I wonder how people are going to respond to this. Surely it's going to be awesome and amazing. How did the world respond to the true life? Well, that's point number three this morning. We must respond to his light. We must respond. Let's see what the world did. What did humanity do with Christ? Verses 10 and 11. Let's look at those first. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Wow. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Wow. There are two responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two ways we respond to the Lord based on this text. Rejecting the light or receiving the light. Let's spend a moment on rejecting and then we'll spend a moment on receiving with the text. There was already darkness here and it rejected. It didn't understand. It couldn't overcome. Remember from our passage earlier last Sunday. Notice the tragedy of verses 10 and 11 in your Bibles. The light had come into the world that he created. He wasn't just ignored like so many today. Last year, I read a book called Apathyism. Apathyism. Who knew it was a word? Somebody made it a word so they could write a book, right? Apathyism. But it's the culture. It recognizes the culture we live in. There was a time in the culture wars where you could really draw a line in the sand and say, man, the man on the street either loves the church or he hates the church. Well, there's still cu culture wars. Make no mistake. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. But for the man on the street, there's more apathy toward the things of God than there is hatred. They don't care. They don't give a thought to the things of God, to church, to anything eternal or spiritual consequence. They might buy a crystal at a store with some incense because it smells nice and they think they're spiritual. And I don't, I'm not trying to be overly dismissive there, but I'm just saying that's the extent of their thought. They might read a book recommended by somebody and think they've done themselves an emotional favor. But we're not talking about that kind of dismissive. He wasn't just ignored. The world was blind and chose not to see him. Jesus was the one who created the world. He was in the world, yet the world didn't see it. Catch this. He made our eyes, and yet we refused to see his glory. He made our ears, and yet we plugged them up so we would not listen to his truth. He made our heads, but we shook them in defiance instead of bowing them in worship. You got that kid picture in your mind? That rebellious kid who's in that moment, that tantrum moment, going, mm, that's us. That's humanity 
responding to God himself. It wasn't just the world that he made. That would be bad enough, but the Bible says he came into his own people, the ones who knew the prophecies concerning him, and they received him not. They rejected him. While Jesus is the true light and all should see, while he's absolutely worthy of everyone's affection at all times and all places, God still used this rejection for his glory. Because he was rejected by the Jews, thank God the message of the gospel made it to the Gentiles. And we're sitting here today as a result. What a God. God doesn't have to try hard or come up with a plan B when we reject him. He is still working and moving and accomplishing his sovereign will. Rejecting Jesus. Listen to me this morning. Young person in the room, tween, teen, all points in between, young and old, hear me right now. If you've zoned out for the service, hear me now. Rejecting Jesus, whether it was the Jews 2,000 years ago or whether it's you seated in a pew in Grace Covenant Church in 2023. Rejecting Jesus leaves you in your sin without a savior no one else can bring you salvation no other light can pierce the darkness of your sin don't turn your back on him hoping that somehow in the balances of heaven your good will outweigh your bad it won't you have no promise or hint from this bible from God himself that that's the case In one of his notebooks, John Stott wrote down two poems side by side and wrote, Pagan, Christian. Let's see if you can pick up on what he wrote down. William Henley's famous boast, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Verses. None other lamb, none other name, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, none other hiding place from guilt and shame, none beside thee. Our only hope in life and death is Christ alone. Christ alone. Many rejected, but that's not the end of the story. Verse 12 said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. So under this heading, you've got rejecting and now you've got receiving. When we receive Jesus, we become children of God. Can I say that again and and emphasize a couple of words? When we receive Jesus, we become children of God. You say, well, what's the big deal, Pastor? That sounds right. Well, our our politicians and, and good speech folks seem to call us all children. We're all children of God. I love when any like public speaker shows up at a, an event with religious folks, they suddenly try to borrow some language that sounds good, but it's just not the case. The Bible says when we receive Jesus, we become children of God. Uh, we're not all God's children. God makes no such claim to that end. He says we're made in his image, hallelujah. We're fellow image bearers as God's creation, but only those who are in Christ, only those who are in Christ bear that title as children of the Most High God. Wow. 
Now, there's another verse I'm going to work my way into, but you know what? Instead of giving you a lot of commentary, I think God's Word can do it better than I can. If you've got your Bibles, I'll have it on the screen, but it might be good to hold it if you can. Turn to Ephesians 2 with me. I'm going to read a passage here that really sets us up for this last little verse that we're highlighting here in verse 13 this morning. Ephesians 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. Some of you that were with me uh, yesterday at the Sanders vow renewal heard this passage yesterday. I might be the only guy that picked this passage for wedding vow renewal, but that shouldn't surprise anybody at Grace, right? Here we go. And you were dead. And then I said, good morning. No, I'm kidding. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't you love verse four? But God, hallelujah, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up I love that. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a passage. And now look at verse 13 with me in the light of that, John 1, 13, where he says, we were born, you see it? God gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We don't become children of God because of our ethnicity. We don't become children of God because of our pedigree in society. You didn't get a leg up spiritually because of the family you were born into. That didn't earn you any points in heaven. You didn't become a child of God because you are a self-made woman or man. In fact, if you are a self-made woman or man, the Bible says that you are at odds against the God who wants to make you new. We don't become children of God because somebody says something over us or to us, or about us that sounds religious. That's the will of man. We can only be saved by the grace and the mercy of God himself. The direct intervention of God in our lives is required for us to even turn toward Christ and see him as a savior. On our own, we are lost in darkness. On our own, we enjoy sin. We won't listen to the truth. On our own, we are content to rebel against God. You see what I'm doing there? Throwing back to earlier. That's how we are when left to ourselves. Christian friend, hear me well. Before you and I knelt at any altar or bowed our head to pray any prayer of confession of sin and trust in Christ, before any of that happened, the Holy Spirit had to be at work in our hearts. God was inviting us by His grace to see Christ in a way we couldn't see Him naturally. 
That's how good God is. We come at his bidding and at his attention. The Holy Spirit was at work in us. What's your proof, pastor? That sounds a little complicated. Hang with me for a moment, 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. John 6, 44. No one comes to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. James 1, 1, 18, where he's talking about God himself. Of God's will, his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the first points. Hear me. Hear me, we would never choose Christ on our own without God working in us to prime the pump of repentance. Listen to me, dear friend. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a child of God, I don't care what somebody said over you, to you, or about you. I'm looking at what God's word says this morning. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a child of God, You don't yet have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ on God's terms and you sense a desire to move toward the light. Spoiler alert, that's the Father working in you to draw you to Jesus. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't waste this moment. Come to the light to have your eyes open. Julia's coming now as we're about to have a moment to just take and reflect and prayerfully respond to the text in our own hearts. Something is off when we have to point out to people that the lights are on. Something is off. Something is off. There's no mistaken uh, this morning that even with all of the beauty of creation and all of the joy and splendor that we get to behold and experience as humanity, with all of man's ingenuity and creativity that, that just um, we enjoy thinking through and meditating on, man, with all of that, something is still off. There's too much brokenness and heartache. There's too much murder and, and too much sin for things to be right. Something is still off. We find ourselves in a world full of little gods, lowercase g-o-d-s, People doing things their own way. Each of us selfishly trying to bend the world and others to our will. It's it's hardly surprising that that doesn't work out. Our self-rule, our self-made status makes a mess of everything. It ruins our own lives. It ruins the lives of those around us. It actually ruins even parts of this world. Yet, into this clear and present darkness... The true light has come. Christ has come to shine the light of absolute truth, calling all who will hear God's call to new life to follow him. John the Baptist thought this message was worth living for and later on will find worth dying for. Ultimately, it's a message you and I will give an account for one day. How did we respond to the light? Let's pray.
Sometimes moments of silence can be awkward, Lord. I'm afraid sometimes we need to step out of the noise and the dizzying distractions that we invite into our lives and sometimes are uninvited to just reflect on the fact that you are God and we are not. Lord, I pray for the one this morning or two or three or five, whatever the number, Lord, that you are drawing to yourself that's not yet said yes and surrendered to you. Put their faith and trust in you. God, would you convict them of their sin? Help them to see themselves as a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, may they cry out to you at some point today. Even in this moment, they can come get me during the song or somebody else lean over to the person next to them and say, I I, I need Jesus. And you'll be faithful to meet them there, Father. As they cry out to you, acknowledging their sin and putting their faith and trust in you, Lord, we, we ask that by your Spirit, Lord, you would quicken them, that they would become alive in Christ. And just like we as a church committed to these parents some special things, Lord, you're not saving them to be an island to themselves, to be a new man or new woman, uh, left aimlessly to wonder and figure things out. God, you're calling them into a family, the family of God. What a blessing. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Help us to recognize we too have been commissioned as agents of light. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.